Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that is straight to the point, but then realises the point isn't that comfy to sit on, so backs off and heads for the sofa. This is episode 151, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week, as barely Prime Minister and Charles Charcoal interpretation of a staircase, Theresa May tells US President and festering perianal abscess Donald Trump that his tweet telling ethnic minority Democrats to go back to where they came from is unacceptable. I wonder if she's just disappointed that he didn't take her advice and drive around a van with a billboard on it to really get his racist message across to them instead. It's May's last week as Prime Minister of the UK and it's incredible to think just how much has changed since she entered number 10 over three years ago. Mainly because it's absolutely nothing. We'd have had more progress in the country if May had been beaten to her post as PM by a wheelie bin. Judging by the current state of things, I was tempted to have a lazy week this week and just post up a repeat episode as you'd hardly have been able to tell the difference. Actually, that's not true as three years ago, before May had really started doing anything, some people had faith in the new leader of the country, whereas now, left with the options of cocaine pudsy Boris Johnson or alarmed cheese string Jeremy Hunt, I think they'd be able to drive all of the faith out of even the Pope till he was left bawling into his smock, denouncing God while plastering the inside of his Popemobile with pages from the Bible made sticky with spit and refusing to leave until the world has burned. The UK's ambassador to the US and police chief from almost any 90s BBC series, Sir Kim Darroch, resigned from his post last week after the situation surrounding email leaks showing Darroch had called Donald Trump inept and uniquely dysfunctional escalated. I mean, how else did he think telling the truth while being part of the government was going to end? He should have known that correct form is just to pretend that the what if Okja was a white supremacist is at least able to feed himself and then if people ask what the massive dent on your head is from where you've been slamming it into a table in frustration or repeatedly facing palming, you just say it's a condition you have that stems from regular engagement with toxicity. While there were many attacks against Darroch from Trump himself, as well as Brexit party leader and old leatherface mask loosely hung up on a door hook, Nigel Farage, who made noise about being his replacement, which I wasn't entirely against, but only because it meant Farage would be in the UK a lot less often than he is now. But Kim Darroch said that the main reason he resigned was after seeing Boris Johnson during the Conservative leadership debate refuse to answer four times if he'd back the ambassador. Nothing more reassuring than seeing the man who's about to replace the wolf feeder-in-chief refuse to say if you're there next lunch because he wants to gobble all the feed for himself. Many claim Boris has thrown Darroch under the bus, which I'm sure Johnson has a model diorama of at home that he's made in his spare time. Of course, Boris is going to be a Prime Minister and tax the civil service rather than risk his own entirely untenable reputation. The fact that they have civil in their job description probably means he already sees them as part of PC culture that he rails against and will likely seek to replace them with different pals from his stag do who he hopes will travel to other countries, call the leader something racist, try to sleep with as many of their staff as possible and die after drunkenly falling off a balcony. Who the next UK ambassador to the US will be is yet to be decided, but I hope they don't pander to Trump and instead anoint Sadiq Khan or that giant inflatable Trump baby balloon. As for the rest of the televised debate in question, well, the best thing about it was knowing that you could avoid two sociopathic arseholes by just not watching one channel. I did watch it, though, in the same way you might watch a public service broadcast about how a giant tsunami will destroy your entire country, just so you can pretend you might actually have some control over how you die. 
The whole debate could have been replaced with the noise of a foghorn dumped over everything Boris said and the sound of bin juice swilling in a bucket every time Hunt did and you'd have ended up with pretty much the same result. An hour-long programme that could have just been renamed Mansplaining the Musical. The main arguing appeared to be over when Brexit would happen as Boris still insists the UK will leave the EU by Halloween, probably because all those Michael Myers masks that look a lot like him are produced elsewhere and a no-deal might mean there's less chance people will think Johnson is a lot shorter, has anemia and is threatening to trick or treat them. It's always trick. He's always trying to trick you. Always. Hunter said that while he wants Brexit sorted by his birthday on the 1st of November, as you know, it would be quite nice ageing while you know the country is decaying quicker than you are, but that's a month later than his original pledge of it being in September, and Hunt's now said that he can't promise Brexit will have happened at all by 2020. Judging by his previous negotiation skills with the junior doctors, I think a Jeremy Hunt Prime Minister might just keep pushing Brexit back, refusing to meet with anyone until someone else has to deal with it. When questioned, Boris said that the blame must lay with Iran for Nazanin Zahari Ratcliffe's incarceration that he undoubtedly made worse by implying she was a journalist. Which, yes, it should lay with Iran, but he threw a ton of firelighters onto what was already a small bundle of hot sticks, and so not claiming any responsibility for that and saying it was all Iran is like holding out a hand to someone who's fallen onto train tracks and then slapping theirs as they reach for you and blaming the end result on the train driver. Later that week, in an interview with Tolkien creation Andrew Neil, Boris was taken to task on his knowledge of GAT24, the WTO rules that Johnson believes would make everything gravy in the UK after a no-deal, and it turned out that Boris had only read paragraph 5b, the bit he always refers to, and he hadn't read 5c or the rest that renders his argument pointless. And it's very tricky for me, because ideally a Prime Minister who's about to take the UK through a huge historical change should absolutely know what they're doing and have researched it all properly, but not reading all the terms and conditions is probably the most related thing that Boris has ever done. The last leadership debate has just happened tonight and included such gems as Boris saying there won't be a general election until 2022, which seems naive as by then people will really hate him. Both condemned Trump's tweets with Hunt saying that he has three half-Chinese children, all British citizens, and he'd be appalled if anyone told him to go back to China, though that may be because half the time he thinks they're from Japan. Of course, none of this matters, as most Conservative members have already voted. Jeremy Hunt will remain the public's preferred option, but that's only because he's up against Boris. But he'd absolutely lose against almost anything else, like, say, a lump of burning horseshit or a roadkill diseased badger. Boris will still win because Conservative Party members have absolutely no concept or care for what the public wants, and the sooner they can elect someone who'll likely kill off their incompetency, everyone earning less than 80 grand a year, the better. Ultimately, it's obvious that we won't get the leader we deserve, but that's because we deserve a leader who's actually an old boot with a face drawn on it, filled with testes, which arguably would do a much better job than either Boris or Hunt. Whoever wins, and it will be Boris, it's unlikely that they'll be able to do anything they've said with Brexit unless they shut down Parliament. Yes, it definitely seems like something Boris would do, that he'd render something completely useless and then try to have his way with it. Various voices have said they'd seek a legal challenge to stop such a thing happening, and these voices, like the world's most boring charity single, include former Prime Minister and man who is cursed to lose all his colour, John Major, campaign and extra from Law and Order, Gina Miller, and Conservative MP and Narnia character Oliver Letwin. They've all said they'd take the government to court if Parliament was prorogued, as any action like that from a PM would make Brexit a legal matter. I for one hope it happens, but only to see Boris try to defend himself in court after only having read one paragraph on how to do it. Last week, MPs overwhelmingly voted to change Northern Ireland's law on same-sex marriage and abortion if their parliament wasn't reformed within three months by October the 21st. So, LGBTQI plus couples will likely have ten whole days to get married before Brexit kicks in and everyone has to separate to increase their chances of survival. But while these changes are progressive, they also mean Westminster is using a bill that is largely there to keep public services running in order to enforce some direct rule onto Northern Ireland. So that leaves the DUP, aka the political embodiment of Meals for One, in a tricky situation. Do they want to stamp out all semblance of happiness and women's rights before they even make an appearance? Or do they want to be even more British? I guess they'll have to pray for a sign from God to let them know, and hopefully they'll be waiting long past October the 21st before they hear back. Labour are looking into an independent process for dealing with complaints of anti-Semitism after BBC's Panorama revealed that senior officials in the party interfered with various disputes. And an independent process would potentially be best as that would allow party members to fight with someone other than their colleagues for once. 
Ideally, if the Conservatives could do it, then Labour might actually work together to oppose them instead. Disputes should be dealt with independently from other areas of the party. And while it's explicitly known that Corbyn's team offered advice to the Labour disputes team after they sought it on the case of a Jewish member being accused of anti-Semitism, it reduces the independent validity of their department. Besides, hadn't the disputes team heard of Google? I mean, Jesus, just use that. Labour disputed much of the content in the Panorama episode, pointing out, quite fairly, that certain quotes were taken out of context, and less fairly, that there isn't the same level of coverage over Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. And while that might be true, it's really just not the best defence to say, well, hey, we're not as racist as those guys. It's like trying to get off a murder charge by pointing out you only killed one person, so it's not as bad as all those mass murderers out there, is it? Hey, let me off, let me off, guys. Left-wing commentator and Hergé creation Owen Jones pointed out that a number of the accusations mentioned in Panorama predated Miracle Max Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader, but then also said the music and camera work were hammy. And that just isn't how you argue a point. It's only racism if you use a multicam rig and ask Ramin Jijawi to do a soundtrack. Deputy leader and star of Dexter's laboratory, Tom Watson, came under criticism after he demanded the Labour Party's general secretary and stock photo of a school governor, Jenny Formby, publish the party's submission into a formal inquiry on the disputes issue, even though she'd previously offered for him to see it twice and is currently taking time off for chemotherapy treatment. But then maybe that's what Tom Watson meant when he said he wanted to attack virulent bullying in the party. It was just that he wanted to be in charge of it, so it was done properly. Shadow Foreign Secretary and van hater Emily Thornbury said that Labour must heed the message on anti-Semitism and not attack the messengers, presumably because it'd be pretty hard to get the message if they do. I mean, if every time the postal worker arrives you lob a hammer at them, chances are you won't be getting any more post. In other news, Health Secretary and Mr Ratburn's partner in Arthur, Matt Hancock, has announced that Amazon's Alexa will now start offering official NHS advice when users ask health-related questions. I mean, I can see that working. You have a life-threatening condition. You may also, like, build your own pine caskets. You have a fungal infection. You may also, like, this home mushroom farm. You appear to have agusia, meaning you've lost all taste. You may enjoy this album by Ed Sheeran. The Department of Exiting the EU are looking to hire four senior policy advisors to work on finding alternatives to the backstop. I'm guessing requirements are simply needs magical powers and absolutely nothing else. MPs who left Change UK are now forming a cooperative parliamentary group called The Independence, which seems like a paradox. The group includes all those who had left their parties to join Change UK and then left Change UK, and also Labour MP and Weird Baby and Dad Face Swap John Woodcock, who had the Labour whip withdrawn due to allegations of sexual harassment. So I'm not sure what he needs is to be part of a group that swear they're all doing their own thing. And lastly, Liberal Democrat leadership candidate and fast show character Ed Davey has announced that the party must bring an end to austerity now. I guess if you started it, you might know how to stop it. I bet he wanders around making big statements about how he'll turn off a tap he's just turned on or close the front door he's just opened too. And UKIP's leader and only man to have a one-ton dumpling with eyes poked into it for a head, Gerard Batten, was going to stand for the party leadership after stepping down from the party leadership, which he said he did to stop UK from folding, which is a big danger for a party with so many wrinkles. But the party NEC have banned him from standing again. Uh, Hey, I guess he can't be that angry they've decided not to let in someone they see as unsuitable. I mean, isn't that exactly the sort of thing he supports? Hey, hey, Papal Broads. Oh, my goodness. Uh, It was hard work writing this week's show. Nothing has changed at all. It is all still no deal bravado, Tory leadership awfulness, Trump being racist and Labour anti-Semitism. I mean, seriously, is the news stuck? Are politicians incapable of progressing forwards with anything? I'm I'm honestly amazed that most sort of topical programmes aren't just repeats from 2016 and then all the presenters can go and have a few weeks off till something actually happens again. I mean, I also blame, uh, partly blame, my current levels of exhaustion due to much driving over the weekend and not much sleeping, all of which add up to make Jack a tired boy. And thus, there are no jokes this week about things like the all-parliamentary panel for whistleblowing because every possible joke I could think of was too bad. It was really too bad. I'm not even going to mention any here. They were awful. There was a bit like a bit about Jiminy Cricket. It's not even... Honestly, I can't even tell you. Terrible. Um, the bit about the BBC panorama on Labour was hard enough, writing that. Jesus, I mean, I'm sure some of you will be angry or whatever at writing about that, because that's what Twitter seemed to be. Some people were angry that things are awful in Labour. Some people were angry that panorama was not saying what they wanted it to be about Labour things. Are all... Basically confirmed what everyone thought in whichever way that was. But I do think it's possible to think that the programme both contained some important things and was also badly done all at once. And in the same that it's entirely possible to think that there's anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and sometimes it's also used as a political tool against them. None of those sorts are exclusive unless you're on Twitter, where it's only one or the other and either Corbyn is Hitler or whatever the opposite of Hitler is. 
uh, Gandhi, maybe, whoever the leader of the Care Bears was. I've never really had time to think about the opposite of Hitler before. Would it even be a person? Might be a dolphin or a milkshake or something. I'd have to do some research. But this is how all opinions are nowadays. You know, you're either left or right, and not, like me, mostly left, but a really big fan of trainers and iPhones. Or, you know, you leave or remain, and not, like me, critical of the EU, and would possibly consider leaving if anyone remotely more sensible than the current government advocated it under an anti-globalisation stance. Or, you know, you're anti-Piers Morgan or think Piers Morgan is an awful arsehole and not, like me, spending at least 20 minutes every day wishing that he falls into a well. But basically, what I'm saying is it's all very complicated. I am way too tired to write about it properly this week. And um, if you go back to episode 96 from April 2018 with actor and writer Marlon Solomon, um, he talked to me all about anti-Semitism there if you want some more in-depth stuff on it. And really, depressingly, not much has changed since then. So it's all quite up to date. Ugh... What a way to do the admin bit, eh? Uh, basically, apologise for being too exhausted to do the podcast that you're listening to. Um, I mean, that's anti-marketing, isn't it? I may as well try and sell food by boasting I was too tired to cook it properly. Still, at least this show won't make you feel sick all evening, so that is better uh, much anyway. Um, thank you for continuing to tune in to what should be the last episode before the summer break if it wasn't for the Tory leadership contest, which means there'll be some sort of episode next week. I don't know what day it will come out on, but judging by the few of you that got in touch, it'll probably be on Wednesday instead of Tuesday. Um, because that's when they're going to announce the Tory leadership results. But it might mean that I don't have a guest if I do that, or it might do, or it might just be me wrapping things up before we all try to enjoy the summer and not just panic about the Boris Johnson-shaped future. And what a shape that is. It's like a duvet stuffed full of old porridge. Um, I'm not going to go on about donating to the show or reviewing it or any of that sort of stuff this week, so just fill in those bits by yourself. I'll even give you a few seconds if you like. Um, Here you go. All done? Good. I hope you're better at persuading people to donate to the Kofi or Patreon or review the show than I am. If you're really good, I may ask you to do it after the summer too, but there's no pressure. I know you all lead very busy lives, or bussy lives, if you drive a bus. Do you see that's the quality of gags I'm capable of today? I'm so sorry. I just should have let someone else do it. Um, Not much else to mention today, other than that, the uh, Camden Fringe show that I'd love you all to come to on August 4th and 5th at the Camden Comedy Club. Um, There's still tickets for it, uh, and they are available at camdenfringe.com. And our kids' show, uh, the kids politics show that I do is going to be at Llama Tree Festival on Sunday 21st in the social tent at 1pm so if you're there with kids and fancy seeing that please come and fancy seeing that please come and if you do have kids please ask them to check out the Comedy Club for Kids podcast that started on Friday as it's very much not like this one and occasionally even contains hope um, that is it that's it for uh, not for the show obviously there's much more of that um, that's it for admin but for the show uh, this week I had a chat with Labour economist Danny Blancheflower and that's Labour economist as in Labour meaning work not for the party or giving birth as I'm not sure how you do the economics for that um, we talked all about his fascinating new book Not Working on why the unemployment rate being low still doesn't mean that things are fixed. Plus, a wee look at the Northern Ireland bill and what the votes of the past week actually mean. Spoiler, potentially lots, but also potentially not lots. So, before all that, though, uh, have a bit of this in your mush. There are various things that Theresa May has liked saying a lot in her time as Prime Minister. One was the word Brexit that she liked saying so much that she made a phrase that had it in twice, like a sort of political couscous. Then there was strong and stable that was sadly never used to describe a really great horse home. And then there was the last Labour government, who she blamed for everything, including lots of things that happened in the years they weren't in power. Another favourite of the nearly not Prime Minister anymore was pointing out just how amazing it was that the Conservatives had created 3 million jobs and the unemployment rate hasn't been as low as it is now since 1974. And that's a pretty great sounding boast. I mean, creating a job can't be easy. You know, it's definitely up there with album titles or new superheroes, so 3 million of them sounds tough. I mean, biscuit manager, that's probably one, isn't it? Aerial surveyor monitor, um, that's someone who watches someone who watches the sky. That's probably another one. And uh, look, yes, I am being silly. That's obviously not what May meant. But what she has never specified is exactly what those three million jobs are, why the unemployment rate is so low despite all these factories closing all the time, and why despite both of those facts, the amount of people in poverty is rising, food bank usage is soaring, the amount of zero-hours jobs have risen, and wage growth has stagnated more than that drawer in my fridge that I forgot to empty before I went on holiday, and now I'm far too scared to open. It's clear that all is not what it seems, but not in an exciting magician-type way, more in a brush-all-the-dirt-under-the-carpet way and hope to God no one checks. Under-carpet-checker was definitely not one of the jobs that they created. 
Luckily, economist Danny Blanchflower has done exactly that. Danny, real name David, but is nicknamed after the Tottenham player, is a labour economist, meaning that he looks at all the facts, figures and data surrounding work and employment. And he also likes to use the economics of walking about, which, as you'll hear in a minute, means he really gets to see what's going on past the headlines and surface numbers. In his new book, Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone?, he looks at exactly why we still haven't recovered from the recession of 2008 and why so many people are still feeling the burn of its effects, despite what Theresa May says. Now, I have to make a little confession uh, this week, which is that while I usually like to read the books of my guests uh, in entirety before I speak to them, I only received Danny's book a few days before speaking to him. So I got through about half of it before we chatted. um, But sadly, I didn't get to finish it. I have finished it now, though, and it's a fascinating and eye opening read about the current state of things. And most importantly, for an economics noob like me, it's very clear and easy to read, despite all the maths that my stupid comedian brain can't usually handle. I was very, very pleased that Danny was up for having a chat. And before I even got to ask him questions, he was recommending Stephen Colbert videos to me that I hadn't seen, which is the sort of thing that lets me immediately know we're going to have a good conversation. I hope you enjoy. Here is Danny. So I think the first thing I want to ask you, um, because I, I found your book, uh, we were just speaking before I've started recording that, uh, you know, I'm not great at economics and um, I found your book really helpful for people like me. I found it um, really clear, very thorough. And I think most importantly, um, your economics is about people uh, and and how it affects them and I I wanted to ask you in in your words uh, well they are your words but you talk about that you do the economics of walking about what how do you see that what does that mean well it's it's a long tradition in the field that I mean in labor economics to actually go and talk to people um, listen to what they say and take it seriously and it turns out that's a really important part of economics these days some, and most economists don't do that. They spend their time with their terrible little models, which are completely hopeless. But it turns out that the people actually know. So if you went prior to 2008 and you looked at what people's views were on the economy or you talked to firms about what was happening, that gave you a pretty good indicator of what was coming. I'll give you an example. In 2008, early in 2008, I was in a taxi driving down Oxford Street. And it turned out the cab driver knew who I was. And he said, I'm glad you're here. I want to show you something. He said, I've been driving down Oxford Street for the last 30 years. Do you notice something? And I said, no. And he said, for the first time in 30 years, people are walking up and down Oxford Street, but they don't have shopping bags. There's an example. That's actually the economics of walking about, because it turns out that people actually had stopped spending. And it took quite a long time for the actual data to come. So the economics of walking about is asking people how they feel, talking to firms. And it, and it was worrying in 2008. And why it matters today is that those data that we looked at a decade or so ago are now starting to look really worrying in the UK. And they suggest that the UK is either in or about to go into recession. So I, I try and explain in my book that talking to people, listening to what they say, really matters. And that's why economists have failed, because they haven't done that. What, what I find fascinating with your book is that I've been reading these headlines for weeks. I mean, only last month we had the headline on the BBC that, you know, unemployment rate is 3.8%, wage growth is faster than expected at 1.4%. But I know people that are still struggling for work and I read about people all the time and I know people online, you know. And um, again, what's fascinating with your book is your your reasons as to why that doesn't, you know, uh, mean all that it seems. I mean, are those headlines correct? Well, yeah, in some in some ways they're right, but in most ways they're wrong. I mean, the big deal is actually if central banks and policymakers say we're at full employment, which is essentially what they've been saying around the world, the question is, do people feel that? And the answer is that they don't. There's an awful lot of hurt all around the world. So the big deal is that people are focused on the unemployment rate which used to be a good indicator of how people would feel. Turns out that's no longer the case, Um, particularly in the UK and elsewhere. What we have are people on zero-hours contracts, people who are in part-time jobs who'd like to get full-time jobs, but especially people have many less hours than they would like, which means their incomes are lower. And the other thing is actually if you're in work, real wages in the UK today are 5.5% below what they were in 2008. What, and what do I mean by real wages? What I mean is 
you you get your pay packet. What can you buy from that wage that you receive? And the answer is people are five and a half percent worse off than they were in 2008. So that's the big deal. Um, that would probably not occur if we were anywhere near full employment. And that's really the big deal. Essentially, my, my view in the book is if we were at full employment, why would people be hurting so much as we're observing that they are? Yeah, it's um. there's so many. I, I was fascinated at how many factors there are involved in why we're not at full employment. One of them, uh, which I think really startled me, was the was uh, under property ownership. And you're saying that the higher property ownership is the uh, more that it affects the possibilities of full employment um, due to sort of mobility and various other issues, which completely uh, blew my mind. I hadn't sort of ever put those things together. Um, but I, I think you sort of point out in the book that, that two of the main factors uh, that have kind of led to stagnant wage growth um, are globalisation and underemployment. Now, underemployment is a term I hadn't heard before, but why have those two been such determining factors? Well, we've seen a steady change over the last two or three decades where the the world got more global. Companies could move, they could move their production elsewhere. That that was occurring prior to 2008. And the effect of that essentially was to, was to push down unionization around the world. And so essentially what happened in 2008 was that that whole process kind of got worse and people were scared. Think of the phrase safe as houses. Well, turns out houses were not quite as safe as we thought they were. Um, and people, um, they lost their pensions, they lost their savings. And what we've seen is a very, very slow recovery. Uh, and the recovery, actually, to put it in reality for the UK, um, George Osborne came into office in 2010 and imposed austerity. And what he did was actually produce the slowest recovery in 300 years. That's, that's, we have data from the Bank of England that shows that's true. Uh, this is the slowest recovery since the South Sea bubble 300 years ago, and it's the third slowest. The last, as I say, was the South Sea bubble. The one before that 600 years ago was the Black Death, so, so, which, was not, which was good for productivity. But, I mean, literally, so we heard these phrases about, you know, you we're all in this together. We've been very successful. This has been a complete disaster. So this has had a big impact on people. Um, and, and essentially, after 10 years of very slow recovery, it looks like the world economy is starting to slow again. So this has had a really big impact on people. Um, and the, the, the errors that policymakers made, when I was on the central bank at the Bank of England in 2008, and basically the committee missed, not only did they miss that a recession was coming, even six months after it had started, they still had no idea that it had actually started. So this is a, this is a story of failure, um, of continuing failure of policymakers that hurt real people that you stand up and uh, when you do your comedy, you stand up in front of those people and you talk to them. And I try in this book to talk to them and say, this is the reality of what the book's about. Um, and that a big part of it, and we talked a little minute ago, we talked about the underemployment. Um, people just can't get a decent job. They can't get the jobs that they would like. And if we were at full employment, that wouldn't be true. Sure. Yeah, yeah, which is sort of the, the awful thing there is, as you point out, George Osborne was quite so terrible and yet somehow has nine jobs now and is overemployed, uh, despite that awful CV of his, which is uh, is ludicrous. But I mean, it, uh, what I, I found it interesting about you speak you speak quite candidly about your time in the Bank of England. And, you know, these policymakers, do you feel there there must be quite a disconnect between them and real people and, and how real people are sort of dealing with these changes? I think you said that very well. I mean, the reality is that central—I mean—central bankers tend not to understand the economics of walking about. I mean, when I was on the committee, when I first joined the committee, I was the only person on the committee who hadn't been to Oxbridge. Everybody else lived, and, and I think apparently still do, lived in around the, in the southeast and in London. Well, what economics of walking about did they do? They seemed completely out of touch with the reality of the people who eventually voted for Brexit and voted for Trump and voted for Le Pen. So there's this out-of-touch thing 
Um, I mean, the bank's position, this has been completely laughable. They've said things like, well, you could never expect a central bank to have spotted the biggest recession in 100 years. Well, yeah, actually, I would have I would have expected it. I got my I got myself into trouble. Listen, just listen to this. So I said, well, it seemed to me that if you had all these hundreds of economists at the Bank of England, well, they who are completely useless, missed the missed the biggest recession in 100 years. They'd have been better off delivering pizza. And actually, someone on Twitter responded <laughs> to me and said, no, 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 you don't want them delivering pizza because they would never have found that right house. Well, it's as bad as that. <laughs> it's literally as bad as that. And even if they had found the right house, the pizza would have been cold by then. It would have been the wrong one. I mean, to actually argue that you shouldn't expect economists to spot the, the greatest recession ever, it seems to me to be laughable. And the public's entitled, entitled to better than that because they pay their salaries. So, I mean, I just think, you know, we, the best we can do is laugh at it. But the problem is that we're a decade in and we're still making the same mistakes. We're still saying that everything's going to be OK in the next 18 months. And in the book, I talk about the Bank of England made 21 forecasts in a row, every one of which was completely hopeless. And the stu my students always ask me when I show them these graphs, well, why do they do that? Is it because they're stupid? And I have to say, well, I don't know. I mean, that's consistent. It's consistent with the evidence. <laughs> but there may, be a, there may be another explanation, which I'm trying to find. You know, they, they may, it will be. What's the thing about the, the 18 re rehearsals of your act were absolutely disastrous. But on the night, it's going to be fine, which generally, generally <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I can I can tell you for certain that's, that it doesn't work like that at all. The, the it'll be all right on the night is is really really true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the all the uh, your mentions in the book about people's happiness and the correlations between basically you know unemployment and underemployment leading to higher gambling and opioid addiction and general sort of feelings of anxiety. I mean, again, does that come back to you know we've got a low unemployment rate, but people aren't feeling satisfied you know is there something about uh the need for self-worth you know if we do jobs you want to feel like you're doing a job that pushes you or is to the what you're trained to be able to do or you know rather than something that you're uh, uh, above well i think this is a really important subject to think about and i deal with it a lot in the book i mean i've written quite a lot about happiness the one fundamental thing that we know is that a good job makes people happy. It's better to be in a job than to be out of a job. Being unemployed makes people unhappy. But one of the big things we've seen, particularly in the UK, where the employment numbers have risen pretty well, but the problem is that then the, the jobs, some of them are zero-hours contract jobs, some of them have less uh, hours than you would like. But the other big thing is that we know that insecurity makes people unhappy. So the good, a good job that I try to write about is a good job that's long-lasting, pays decent wages, um, and, and is essentially secure. And that's a big problem. But what we've seen over time is that those, that those feelings of insecurity, anxiety, hopelessness, um, isolation, all of those things have, have basically emerged. In the UK, there's been a huge rise in depression, there's been a rise in anxiety, um, and and so th th that's had consequences. And particularly, the concern in the United States is that happiness has been falling steadily in the U.S. and especially so for the for the less educated. Um, and we have this terrible problem now in the U.S. of what's called deaths of despair, which is opiate um, deaths from um, drug poisonings, from cirrhosis of the liver, from from drinking, from suicide. Um, a lot of this work done by Angus Deaton and, and Case, and there's a new study being set up in the UK, and, and Angus has argued that actually the same thing appears to be present in, in the UK. And we, so, so that's obviously a big concern. We've seen rise in depression in the, in the UK, big rise in the um, taking of antidepressants. So this is, all, this is all pretty scary. But remember where we started, the central bank says we're at full employment. And that at full employment, you'd think that everybody would be feeling great. But what we've talked about is the evidence is that they aren't feeling great. Well, then the last, the one, one of the other thing I should say, actually, is that I think the fundamental thing that, that the book talks about is that work makes people happy. There's no evidence whatsoever that the argument that the unemployed are lazy bastards. 
There's no evidence of that at all. The, art, the evidence is that people want to work. If they get a job, it makes them happier. If they lose a job, it makes them less happy. Um, but it's about the quality of the jobs that really is the big deal. And that's why the book talks about, you know, where have all the good jobs gone? And, and that's what austerity did. That's what Osborne and the Tories and the Lib Dem coalition did. They basically um, destroyed the growth in the economy that was coming. And we've suffered mightily because of their incompetence. And I mean, now I'm fully aware that you're you're an economist, not a sort of, uh, I suppose it'd be a, a psychologist. Maybe I should be asking this question too. But, <laughs> it, you know, I, I surely uh, full employment and people being happy would, be, you know, be beneficial to the government, would be beneficial to, uh, you know, the amount of income a country has and it would get more wealth out there. What's... You know, other than sort of, I, I suppose, is it just ideology that we've gone through all this? What is, is there anything that's worked out better f for them as a result of uh, so many people being unhappy and underemployed? Like, I, I find it, I, I that's for me, it's just very hard to look at this and go, sorry, why has this happened? <laughs> why did anyone do No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I mean, in a sense that the book's very much about let's put the pedal to the metal and get people into good jobs and get the unemployment rate down, um, what that will do is it'll change the balance of power between workers and firms, right? So if you, if you think, well, what's unemployment, what's full employment? Well, there's a famous story um, by a guy called William Beveridge, who actually defined full employment. He was asked by Churchill in 1943 to go away and think about what full employment would look like when the men and women who were at war, when there was full employment, of course, what it would look like when they came back um, to work when the war was over. And he wrote a thing which said, I think um, unemployment of around 3% would be full employment. And he says, full employment is where people are standing by, waiting for job offers to come in. And event, you know, and, they, and suddenly the workers, have, 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 the power to workers is much higher. Keynes wrote to him and said, well, actually, I think 3% is probably too low, but let's try it and see. Well, in 1960, Beveridge looks back and says, ha-ha, I was wrong. It turns out in the UK, we, we averaged an, un an unemployment rate of 1.5%. Remember, remember in the 50s, we talked about, uh, Macmillan talked about, you never, you never had it so good. So, I, so the worry that the central bankers have had is about inflation, which happened in the 70s, before all the globalization we talked about. The reality now is inflation is irrelevant. You can't create any. All this, all the attempts by policymakers to tell you inflation was about to take off were nonsense. Um, and so the way to solve this problem, my book talks a lot about, it, is let's try and crank the economy. Let's get let's get um, workers being, being given lots of job opportunities, lots of decent job opportunities, and at full employment, people start to get offered good jobs. And many of the f concerns and fears about unhappiness and so on starts to go away because suddenly, instead of being offered a wage at 10 quid an hour, you get offered a wage at 15 or at 20. And suddenly all those worries you had about paying your bills start to go away. We know that people are concerned about paying their bills and paying for childcare and all of that. So essentially, that's the counter to the argument that, you know, we need to raise interest rates because we worry about inflation. And we should laugh and say, well, there isn't any. What are you doing? And we'll be back with Danny in a minute. But first, Northern Ireland is, by all accounts, still there, despite what many Brexiteers would have you think. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But while much of the talk surrounding the bit of the UK across the sea is all about having special futuristic cyber alien technology to monitor the border that will be given by a time traveller in our hour of need, why won't you just trust me? What's largely forgotten is that Northern Ireland doesn't currently have a government of its own. The Northern Irish Assembly was collapsed in 2017, following the whole Cash for Ash scandal and a whole heap of other disagreements between the DUP and Sinn Féin, and nothing's been sorted out for the last two years, with the current next deadline when the Northern Ireland Secretary, whoever it may be by then, will have to call an Assembly election, now being extended to October the 21st. There's also a chance it could be extended further until 13th of January 2020, if needs be, which it probably will. But it ain't great having two years of absolutely no legislation, so some of that has been passed to Westminster to keep things ticking over. Because if you need to get something done within a limited time period, then that government's the team to do it, right? Oh, oh well. So here we have the Northern Ireland Bill, or Northern Ireland Executive Formation Bill, for long. That's meant to just be for extending the deadline for an Assembly election and for the Secretary of State to have to report on it all. Except it's a bit of legislation, and such is the rules with any bit of legislation, it can have amendments added to it by MPs. This time round, Labour MPs Stella Creasy and Conor McGinn put forward amendments to make same-sex marriage legal in Northern Ireland if an executive rule has not been restored by October 21st, as well as adding in amendments for abortion rights too. Both of those were overwhelmingly voted for in Parliament last week, and now this is being seen as a watershed moment for the country, moving towards a more progressive future in line with the rest of the UK, apart from all the non-progressive stuff that we're still doing. And this is all pretty tickety-boo great and long overdue, except that there are two big issues. One is that none of this means that those will become law yet. First, they have to get through the Lords, who include Lord McCrea from McGarrafelt and Cookstown. I've probably said that wrong. And he looks like a haunted Bill Murray. And today he stood up saying that he would be speaking for the voices of the unborn, which is weird as they probably wouldn't be able to speak yet. Sadly, he didn't then gurgle and make baby sounds for five minutes, which I think means nothing he then said afterwards was legit. But then, as a nod to how things are changing, you also had Lord Trimble, the former Ulster Unionist leader, who had previously voted against the Civil Partnerships Bill, but told the House of Lords that he can no longer oppose it after his elder daughter got married to her girlfriend. Although we're crediting him for actually finally getting with the times, I do guess that there's every chance in his old-fashioned mind that he just assumes two women together won't be needing an abortion anytime soon, and so it's just the lesser of two evils. Well, I very much hope not. The debates on all these are going to be going on all week and they're currently going on as I record this and they're going on far too late for me to add any updates before this is finished. But it's very possible that the Lords will change things or add more amendments and then it's going to have to go back to the Commons anyway. But here's the other issue. As well as these being two important changes to Northern Irish legislation, there's a lot of concern that this is overriding Northern Irish democracy. And as DUP MP and one big forehead with eyes, Nigel Dodd said, he feels the Commons votes have driven a big coach and horses through the principle of devolution. And that choice of transport there very much shows what era he's from. While same-sex marriage being passed through Westminster might actually be seen as a blessing from the DUP, as then it removes it from negotiations with Sinn Féin, it does raise the question of what else will pass through Parliament that should be done through the Assembly, which could then further damage attempts to restore it. None of which I guess would matter too much if there wasn't quite such a history of direct rule in NI and the troubles it caused beforehand, and thoughts on what might happen now if this continues, and there's a whacking great big border wall erected there as well. Sympathies too with liberal-minded Northern Irish people who want same-sex marriage and abortion rights, but it means siding with the loss of devolution for them to do so, and much less sympathies for the DUP who don't want those things, but did also say they wanted the same as Britain when it came to Brexit, further proof that cherry-picking with these things just don't work. Neither Boris or Hunt voted on the same-sex marriage bill, despite later claiming that they support it, so it's likely that whichever of them becomes PM, and it'll be Boris, will see a stance on Northern Ireland that mostly involves them forgetting it's there all over again, and praying for that time traveller to appear someday soon. But fingers crossed, this all works out, and everyone ends up feeling much happier about everything. Except for Lord McCrea, who'll be standing around avidly shitting himself for all those unborn babies that can't. And now, back to Danny. Yeah, it, it's your. Um, you had a sort of list of five 
recommendations of what could happen in a kind of uh, I I'll say ideal world. I'll ask you about what the realistic possibilities are in a minute. Um, but obviously, one as you've just mentioned was kind of investment and 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 pushing for uh, full employment. I, I thought I I found it very interesting. You said obviously we should be spending more on infrastructure because that then creates more work and creates a society that works. I mean, basically, it seemed very obvious, but we we haven't seen much. Right. Of that, I'm guessing. Well, let's let's just think. I, I can actually adapt it even more. So the problem, if you basically end up saying we, we're not going to do anything on the on the tax front, what we're going to do is we're going to allow economic policy to be driven by the central bank. The central bank sets interest rates, but the problem is that there's regional differences here. And what and basically this is there's one interest rate for everybody. Well, it turns out it's too low in London and too high in I don't know, Hartlepool and, and Sunderland. Well, the benefit of an infrastructure spend, I mean, it's its kind of obvious that you start to invest in people. I mean, it's exactly, I call it a reverse Osborne. In 2010, <laughs> Osborne, Osborne says, we're going to cut public investment so that there's more private investment. It's as stupid as that. So basically, the argument is, well, let's invest in people and, and infrastructure. So this, let's say we invest in decent roads and bridges. That, that actually reduces commuting time, which makes people really unhappy. But here's something we could do. It's not just that we could do invest in, in the infrastructure. We can invest in the places that are hurting. Think of the Yorkshire mining towns. Think of the seaside towns that voted for, um, for, for Brexit. We can actually use our infrastructure spending to do that first. And then secondly, it provides good jobs. One of the big things about an infrastructure spend is that construction jobs are good jobs for many people who are less educated. So this is a way, this is a way of helping my problem of getting good jobs for the, for the less educated. It's a way of helping the regions um, and it's a way of getting the economy to work better um, and the other thing is that governments can borrow money right now so cheaply that it's hard to see that this is not a great investment. So almost everything politicians have told you about, we need to get the debt down, we need to cut public investment. It's almost exactly wrong. Invest in people and, and try and improve their working conditions, get the economy cranking again, and all of this nonsense will go away. But I have no great hope that we'll see anything like this, although the two political candidates in the UK are kind of electioneering about how they would spend money, but doesn't appear any of it to be on normal working people or on infrastructure. It's about giving more money to the rich, which won't trickle down to, to anybody else. So this is political pandering, but austerity is, I would argue that austerity caused Brexit, caused the hurt, and it's the, it's the most failed economic policy ever. And I argue that George Oswald, who you say has nine jobs and is trying to be the, the head of the IMF, is the worst chancellor in 300 years, bar none. Wow. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it, 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 you, you touch on it in the book as well, but the obviously attitudes, I mean, I, I sort of see it, the, the attitudes towards austerity have changed and people don't want it anymore. And we've been told it's ending and it doesn't end in, you know, but but you're talking about borrowing there and borrowing still has quite a lot of negative connotations or when it's used, it's always in a critical, you know, for example, Labour would borrow and that's meant to be an awful thing, but we should be looking at borrowing as, as a good thing. Well, think think about well, there's two possible ways to think of borrowing. The first one is let's suppose we borrow a billion pounds. One possibility is we could have a giant party and blow it all and it's gone. Okay, that's one possibility. Another possibility is we take that billion pounds and we invest in projects that have high rates of return. Investment, let's call it. So that that investment, you borrow at one and you invest in a project at eight. I mean, this essentially is the is the part of Laffer of Laffer, who's it's called the Laffer crew, who says you cut taxes and it'll pay for itself. Well, the evidence is that's not true. But if you invest in things and you borrow cheaply, that improves stuff. So it's about what you spend it on, but it's also the price at which you can borrow, and the price at which you can borrow today is really cheap. So great universities around the world have actually been borrowing lots of money. So the University of Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard. Um, and the Dartmouth, where, where, I, where I work, have very big endowments. And the question is, should you borrow, let's say, a billion pounds for 100 years at 3%? Well, the answer is, of course you should. So you should borrow to invest. Countries can invest. 
the economics is completely ridiculous. We cut, we cut public spending pretending that that will make people better off. And it turns out, well, look at America. So what's happened in America? You give $2 trillion of tax cuts from a party who says we really care about the debt. It increases the debt enormously. And the, and the GOP says, well, that's fine. It doesn't matter. Well, if it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. And the view is that you should invest in your people. And that would have prevented all the hurt that we're seeing. So the economics that we've heard about is, is has been a disaster. And let me just say, the other thing is people didn't really learn from Keynes. Keynes talked about in 1931 what he called the long-dragging conditions of semi-slump. And what that means is long-dragging conditions that respond to a financial crisis. So 1929 was a great crash, and the, the 30s were, were the, the follow-up from that. What we've seen in 2008 is exactly that, that you have another financial crisis. Recovery is slow, and Keynes taught us that you should be investing in people, you should be pumping money into the system, and, and essentially what we've done is exactly the opposite. Keynes was right in 31, he's right again now, but the problem is we've had 10 lost years, and now at the, at the, at the end of a recovery where people are still hurting, it looks like we're headed down, and Brexit's coming at a terrible time. Uh, which is which is what I was going to ask you next, because obviously I'm asking, you know, I, I mentioned in an ideal world, we'd have more investment uh, and, and we'd have more infrastructure. We're not in a very, we, our, our world is not remotely ideal at the moment, uh, from my <laughs> point of view anyway. Um, I mean, can you see any positives coming from anything you know we've got trump's trade wars in the us which seem to be further damaging things for workers we've we've obviously got brexit in the uk um what do you what do you see happening next well i'm sorry not to be very cheery um, and i'm gonna <laughs> depress you even more um so what we have had was an opportunity to recover from the great recession um, the problem is that we have this global trade war, which means China's slowing, Germany's slowing. It appears that, that Germany headed to recession, the UK headed to recession. The central bank in the United States raised rates wrongly and is now looking like it's going to have to cut them. But the problem are two things. The first is that interest rates in 2008, when I've started eventually getting my colleagues on the committee to agree with me and cut rates. We could cut rates from five and a quarter to a half. Well, today rates in the UK are 0.75. So there's not that far you can go. Uh, the second problem is this quantitative easing, which people have done where you purchase assets, not clear that that's going to have great effects. And then the problem, and this is starting to be heard by central bankers around the world, the the, the, the the president of the European Central Bank, Draghi, last week said we have to have help from the fiscal authorities, from the tax authorities. The governor of the Bank of Australia said the same thing. And the problem is, well, look at where we are in the UK. It doesn't appear we even have a functioning government. Not clear that the new this new leader of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the Conservative Party is actually going to be able to um, well, get anything through the House of Commons. Not clear who the chancellor would be. And the problem is that Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, is gone by January. So who the heck is going to take over the reins at the Bank of England? So the worry is that the shock that's coming, um, the folks who, who were supposedly in charge have got themselves in a right mess. And it looks like we have very little ability to prevent this shock that's coming. And then add to that, you have Brexit coming at this time where investment's falling, uncertainty in the markets. The pound has already been falling quite a lot. Um, it's down you know, around a, a buck 25. When I joined the Bank of England in 2006, it was um, a buck 90. So we've seen it go from a buck 90 to a buck 25. And people are talking today about if we get anywhere close to a no-deal Brexit, I think it's completely conceivable that the, that the pound and the dollar will be at parity if, if Johnson or Hunt do anything like the no-deal Brexit or uh, the craziest, what I call fantasy economics that we've talked about. So this is, this is very bad. But the timing of Brexit is incredibly bad because it appears to be coming as the global economy is slowing and firms are not going to invest in the UK because they don't know what's coming. And what we've seen is the auto sector and uh, airplanes and all sorts of heavy of manufacturing say, we're out of here and firms are leaving in droves. So this is, this is bad news for UK workers, but it's the policymakers' fault. They did it, they caused it, they should be the ones to be blamed. 
and I mean, I'm just going to attempt to have some sort of vague sense of hope uh, here. Do you think there's any any sort of Brexit that could turn things around if we ended up with a, you know, I mean, I, I and I have to say, I can't see either of these things happening with, say, Boris or Hunt in, in charge. But, you know, say a Norway style option, if we end up with a, with a, a, a less of a hard Brexit than was planned, do you, would that be as devastating or do you think we're just hurtling on the path to misery now well the the closer to remain that the country goes to the better um i have written that i think the 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 consequences of brexit would be either bad horrendous or disastrous and i think you just got to choose between those three as far as i can see there are no economic benefits whatsoever from brexit it's fantasy economics now maybe you say it's about sovereignty, which I don't understand because you can't eat sovereignty. Um, so I think it's I think Brexit is a is a cry for help for people. It's a sense of hopelessness, but they've been lied to. And the problem is that the economics, the economics look completely disastrous, not least because of the timing. So the people have been told stuff that simply is not true. Um, so I'm afraid it looks to me that this looks like. The, the, an it looks like an economic suicide note. Great. Um, <laughs> um, I, no, no, no. Do you know what? Every, every interview I do for this show always ends with going, oh, well, but we can't do any of these things because it's terrible. So it's, uh, it's why I put comedy either side of the interview so they can laugh while they're crying. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I wanted to very quickly ask you, because I haven't asked you much about the US, and that's it is a, this is a primarily UK podcast with the UK listenership, but I know, obviously, you're ba- you live in the US and you do a lot of work on that, and the book obviously right. features a lot on the US too. Uh, the US appears to have some hope though in that the last um the last elections the democrats took more seats i don't know what's going to happen with their leadership but do you feel like there's a possibility for change in the states or you feel you know at, at the moment trump seems to be causing quite a lot of damage is that in your mind irreversible i'm not sh- not sure that it's irreversible i mean the the one thing i would say and and the book i talk about it that i think that the the trump is right on one thing in particular which is that the Fed made a this is the, the the central bank in the United States made a huge error in raising interest rates based upon no evidence from the real world, and Trump has been going after them. He's been going after them, um, going after Jay Powell, the 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 the, the boss, uh, arguing that he was mistaken. And I think Trump's actually right on that score. Um, the big worry, I think, is that particularly the something that happened yesterday, which is that twenty. Um, state attorney generals have gone to the appeals court to throw out Obamacare. And it looks quite conceivable that actually that gets passed. That would remove health care from 20 million people. Um, and it might, it'll, if that goes through, which it looks like it will, it'll end up going to the Supreme Court, um, which will have a big impact on the recession, uh, on the recession, I mean, on the ele- election, sorry. Um, I mean, the question is why you would possibly do that? Because in the 2018 election you just talked about, that was driven by, particularly about people's concern over health care. So there is this huge disconnect. Can you imagine, um, just before the election, 20 million people lose their health care coverage. They lose being able to um, buy policies with pre-existing conditions, kids staying on their health insurance of their parents till they're 26. This looks like absolutely ridiculous. But that's happened in the last two days. Um, I mean, with no with no plan to do anything about it to remove healthcare from 20 million people, that looks that looks like madness to me. So I don't know. We will see. But the the election in 2020, I think, is a really big deal. Not least because, following on from what we've talked about, I think there's every prospect that the U.S. will be in recession in 2020, and the big economic benefits that Trump has had will start to dissipate and 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 his p- approval ratings now are around 45 percent but with the economy in the state and certainly in unemployment terms you would have thought that his, his he, he would have had ratings around 60 so i think the economics and the politics are going to be really important in 2020 and whether whether that can be turned around looks to me probably too late and many markets are increasingly building in the prospect that the u.s will go into recession in 20. 
Well, so, uh, yeah, I mean, and if it happens, I'm sure Trump will still say he's brilliant and uh, he's got the most approval <laughs> ratings ever. So uh, it's, <laughs> it's pointless, isn't it? Um, right. Well, I was going to say thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for your time uh, and let me interview you today, uh, Danny. It's much appreciated, and uh, I really did enjoy your book. Thank you um, very much. Thank that. you. Um, I just wanted to ask you last question, which is something that I ask all the guests that we have on the show. Um, which uh, is simply that, apart from yourself, obviously, um, which other macroeconomists or political commentators or experts, who would you recommend that listeners also read up on or look out for for either reliable economic ideas or Politi- uh, sort of political views in general, who do you go to? Who's your go-to people? Well, I like Simon Wren Lewis in the UK. He's got a, um, a, a, a very good blog. He's called Mainly Macro. He's very sensible um, and tries to bring together um, the economics and the literature from economics and tries to relate it to ordinary folk. So that's pretty interesting. I, mean, I, 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 I like to read Paul Krugman. He's, he, he's very interesting. He has views on probably too much, but I think he's very, <laughs> he, I mean, he, has, he, run, he writes a column in the Times, in the New York Times. I mean, he won a Nobel Prize, so he's worth listening to. Um, but I think, I think the, the, for folks, it's be skeptical about what you read because so much of what's going on is driven by people who, who have a political ax to grind. And I think that's the that's a big problem. And economics, certainly economists have, have been a, a big problem because they really have not um, focused right on what's going on. Let me finish you with the great story, actually. So the Queen was was actually the person who made the greatest comment on on economics. So she was opening the London School of Economics, this new economics department. Um, and somebody said to her, we have 150 economists here. And the Queen turned to them and said, well, if you have so many economists, why did they miss the Great Recession? And the guy turned to her and said, well, they were working on something else. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Of course, much more important, right? So I think the answer is that we should be skeptical about what economists say. But Simon Ren Lewis, I think, is a, is a very good um, commentator. Um, and, I, and I actually, the other one that I always read forever is Bill Keegan, who writes in The Observer every couple of weeks. And, and he has a great attachment to the past which I like. Thanks so much to Danny for having time to chat. Uh, Danny's new book is called Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? And it's available now in hardcover or Kindle versions from all good bookshops, though how you judge the morality of your bookshop is totally up to you. I mean, I'd probably base it on a system of alphabetising and how many books they have on display by BG on steroids crossed with an excitable shaggy dog, Joe Wicks. But I'm sure you have your own criteria. Uh, You can follow Danny on Twitter at D underscore Blancheflower. And thank you too, as well, to Princeton University Press for sending me a copy of Not Working and putting me in touch with Danny. You can follow them at Princeton New Press on Twitter and check out all their other publications at press.princeton.edu. There may or may not be a guest next week, and either way, after the sun break, I'll be back to needing absolutely loads of them. So if you have someone you'd like me to contact or something you'd like me to find someone to talk to about, please drop me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, as it's the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, why not spend eight years training to be an astronaut, wait until there's another mission to actually land on the moon, which may never happen again, and then once up there, assuming you're allowed out and you aren't just the buzz of the group, write the name of the interviewee you'd like to suggest in giant letters on the moon's surface. And then that way, when the moon's full, and I'm assuming I'm still doing the podcast by then, I'll be able to see it and jot it down, or more likely, I'll miss it due to bits of clouds or only see it when it's half moon and just get someone else with the same first name. Or you can also get one of Kubrick's living relatives to film you doing all that in a studio somewhere where the shadows are all wrong, you know, depending on your opinion, obviously. Either way, it's probably just easier to email, isn't it? that's all for this week's partly political broadcast podcast thanks again for choosing to use up your allocated pod time allowance on this show uh, meaning that the only rations you have left allow you to hear the opening themes of this american life and probably an advert at the start of adam buxton's podcast i'm sure these pod rations will one day be lifted and you'll be allowed to hear all of an egg being powdered someday one day if you do enjoy this show please give it a lovely review on whichever pod site you use donate to the code for your patreon accounts and shout it from the rooftops that people should listen to this show although maybe not when it's raining or you know maybe not from particularly high rooftops as i'd hate to be responsible for any accidents unless you could plug it on your way down as that'd probably be quite effective wouldn't it listen to papa bra something something like that thanks always to acast to my brother the last skeptic for all the tunery and to cat day for all the linear liner notes that end up on partly political broadcast.co.uk 
update every single week. This will be back next week on a Wednesday instead of a Tuesday, probably, uh, when completely unexpectedly, Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson receive the exact same amount of votes and have to share the job of Prime Minister. Boris does Monday, Wednesday and Friday, Hunt Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday. Sunday, the rest of the Conservatives get put into a lottery-style system and everyone gets a go before Christmas. Except one Sunday, when Chris Grayling has a go and breaks it and ruins it for everyone. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Matt Hancock's Internet of Things connected to the NHS. Why stop at Alexa, thought Matt, when all of your devices can be linked up to the official advice of our incredible health service. Want something from your Wi-Fi-enabled fridge? With the new NHS connecting ability, it just won't open if you want to eat anything containing, well, anything. Watch out, that cheese might kill you. Beware, bacon can cause cancer. I have ordered you 500 salads. Get an NHS Wi-Fi-enabled thermostat that will make sure your heating is only on in the summer and absolutely freezing in the winter, and any lights will be overly bright until 10pm when they'll all turn off. Your smart TV will charge £9.90 for TV and movies, and your new NHS Wi-Fi-enabled car will charge you extortionate rates to park, well, anywhere. Matt Hancock's Internet of Things connected to the NHS, because why make the health service better when you can just connect an iPad to it? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.